3: Hello, and welcome to Outward. This is Slate's monthly show about LGBTQ life and culture. You know, whether you identify as a beautiful gay (laughs) tulip unfurling its petals in the warm Mm. spring sun, or, like me, identify as a nasty (laughs) pollen-spewing flowering tree that wants nothing more than to cause widespread sinus congestion. Remember, we're all valid. Uh, in truth, I'm less of a tree and more your faithful co-host, Jules Gil Peterson.
4: I'm Christina Cotterucci, a senior writer at Slate, and I'm the little bird outside my window right now building a nest in a tree. <gasps> oh my God. It's so special. I feel honestly really proud. I did nothing to make the tree what it is, but I still feel like I'm the one that gave this bird its little home.
2: I'm Brian Lauder. Uh, I'm an editor at Slee, and I love Jules, I love that. I think it's like gay as in tulip or queer as in nasty pollen spewing flowering tree. There are many (laughs) kinds. There are many kinds of us.
3: (laughs) I'm queer in that way too. I feel feel that.
5: I love
1: it.
3: Well, listeners, if you couldn't already tell, spring is in the air. Uh, and, And we have a really fun episode for all of us gays coming out of our various hibernations. First, it's time to take back our beloved children's characters from those right-wingers frothing at the mouth about how everything animated, whether it's on film or TV, apparently has a world-ending immoral agenda, whatever. We know our favorite animated characters are very often quite gay. So let's talk about it on our own terms. We'll be digging into a new animated series version of the beloved frog and toad stories a kind of gay couple for the ages (laughs) knowing that the author of the original stories was himself gay as well as the adorable pairing of the titular amphibians we'll explore what it means to look for queer stories in children's culture in an era of both you know sort of corporate lgbt marketing but also those conservative moral panics So, you know, whether you're more of a Bert or an Ernie, you're not going (laughs) to want to miss this. And then we'll be welcoming one of our favorites to the pod, the extraordinary, hilarious, and beloved Danny Lavery. For years, Danny was Slate's own Dear Prudence, the renowned advice columnist. And now a Dear Prudence book is about to grace our shelves. This book features many of the most memorable moving and page turning letters from advice seekers that Danny fielded over the years. And we'll talk to him about how advice giving is, or certainly became under his faithful watch, a very queer endeavor indeed, uh, how his approach to giving advice changed alongside some big changes in his own life, and of course, all the answers to the deepest, darkest anxieties about my personal life. Um <laughs> Oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm I'm getting word from our producer June that I, I can't actually make this whole interview into a personal advice no, session. No, I but... want that. I want that. <laughs> slate
2: Slate Plus segment. Slate Plus segment. <laughs> well, either way, don't worry,
3: folks. It's still going to be delightfully gossipy and very gay. We'll of course have our usual round of prides and provocations and updates to the gay agenda for this month of April. But first, let's see what y'all had to say about last month's episode for our Thoughts and Queries mailbag, Uh, beloved letter carrier Brian, can you give (laughs) us an update?
2: I'm just like the snail and and uh, frog and toad with the, yeah, with the mailbag. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite character. Well, actually, uh, Jules, this month we decided that since we are being graced with Danny's presence, as you said, that we would uh, take an advice question from our mailbag and discuss that with him. So uh, we're going to hold off on that for right now and do it later in the show uh, when Danny is here and and we we have a really I think thorny and. Somewhat mm-hmm. funny, but also not um, kind of family <laughs> question, queer family question to, to, to address. So, yeah, stay, stay tuned
3: for that. It'll be it'll be fun. I'm told that, you know, deferred gratification can be very rewarding. So let's find out, folks.
2: Um, but as always, if you have a thought or query about this episode for us uh, and advice questions are always welcome as well, you can please let us know that uh, at OutwardPodcast at slate.com. And as always, we love to hear your voices, especially. So do the voice memo thing and send those our way. Again, that's outwardpodcast at slate.com.
4: And now it's time for our prides and provocations. Just as a recap for any new listeners, this is the segment where we share how we're feeling this month about the LGBTQ community. Brian, how are you feeling this month? Or should I say, how are we feeling this month? How
2: are we feeling, Christina? Because I think we want to extend a very special outward show-wide pride to Jules Mm
5: -hmm. and to the
2: victory of framing Agnes at the GLAAD Awards. If our listeners haven't heard about this, a few weeks ago, uh, Framing Agnes, which of course we discussed on the show in December, won the Outstanding Documentary Award, and so we were just so proud of Jules, of director Chase Joint, of actor Jen Richards, who we had on the show, um, and the rest of the creative team for making such an important film. But Christina, I think it's I'm correct in saying that we were also proud of the fashions.
4: Honestly, I. <sighs> was floored when oh. i saw jules's look oh my um, God. and the glamour and the poise you brought to the red carpet was straight out of old hollywood
3: well you wouldn't have known i was absolutely terrified the whole time
4: no. i was like how do you go yeah. on a red
3: carpet it was my first time thank you oh you look
4: so good i'm sure there will be many many more in your future
3: yeah. So, so if you haven't seen this
2: yet, uh, pause the show and get to googling. Um, Framing Agnes Glad awards. I think should get you to the to those photos because you need to see them.
4: Um, okay, but Brian, you can also have another pride if you want, or a provocation.
2: Thank you. Um, so yes, my personal one for this month is another pride. Are you all familiar with the cable network L M N, aka the Lifetime Movie Network? So. What it is is this—it's uh, a cable channel that is really just a string of cheap made-for-TV thrillers mm. uh, that are targeted at women about mm. like conniving cheerleaders, stalker, old lady neighbors, <laughs> devious yoga retreat teachers, oh my God. wine academy competitions gone like turned to murder. These wine are all academy? real. Yeah, these are all real plots that were from movies in the last like three weeks that you've um, watched, that I've watched in the last yes, that I've watched
3: hours.
5: So,
2: the plots are, like, pretty, like, almost, like, AI formulaic, but they are extremely satisfying and always, almost always, push into, like, unhinged camp territory. Ooh. So, I want to say that I'm just proud of the gays who are over at LMN behind these movies because I, I will often, like, go there f- intending to watch for five minutes while we're figuring out whatever else we're going to watch that night, and we will, like, wake up three hours later having watched, like, two of these movies because they are just so <laughs> addictive, I especially want to express pride in this month's theme. Each each month on the oh. network has a, a sort of theme, which is "home is where the harm is."
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that sounds With, like a PSA from like my health class in eighth grade or something. I
2: love it because it could be the title of a queer theory anthology. I was
3: gonna
2: say. It's like very apropos of our like political moment. Mm-hmm. I think it really gives you something to think about, and so I, I just want to again. Express pride in Element for all of the camp ridiculousness that's happening over there. But especially for as as they intone it on the show, this month on LMN, home is where the harm is. <laughs>
4: oh my god, Brian, that's <laughs> oh so much. I don't know what like, yeah. they think in that. Right voice. Now. <laughs> Jules, what about you? Uh, how are you feeling this month? Well, you know, I, I am
3: feeling a little provoked. There's a mm. lot of there's a lot of provocation out there. Mm-hmm. I'll be brief, but mm, I am feeling provoked by the Biden administration uh, mm. in their in their latest greatest entry in liberal compromise. Uh, this time, trans sports edition. So, some of y'all might have heard that. Or might have just observed this weird rollout of a Title IX policy. Of course, Title IX is the federal statute that prohibits discrimination, um, you know, on the basis of sex in higher education and sports. And it's been sort of, you know, political football for years over um, trans people's participation in organized sports. And obviously, you know, we've seen just a record number of bills, as we've talked about on the show, you know, banning uh, trans people, particularly trans girls from playing in sports. And actually, the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court just disallowed one of Mm -hmm. these bills, right, from going into effect, one in West Virginia, But somehow, inexplicably, seemingly the same day, great sense of timing. The Biden admin was like, hey, we've got our new Title IX policy for trans people. I just wanna say, not a lawyer, but it's like very obvious that because Title IX prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, like you cannot discriminate against trans people under Title IX. That's on the basis of sex. We have sex. sex. We all have sex and not in the cool way. We all have sexes, right? So, yeah. so the Biden admin policy is just really bizarre. It's this super, like, compromise thing that it first says you cannot just target all trans people in your state, right, or in your local place or whatever, right? You can't just go after trans people and ban them, um, you know, from participating in sports. That's obviously sex discrimination. Okay, great. We agree. But, uh, but, but. Yeah, but, stop
4: <laughs> there.
3: Stop there, right? You could have just closed the mm-hmm. laptop right there. But no, they went on and said, "But you could design some sort of local criteria for sex evaluation that you could use to exclude some trans athletes, just just not a blanket ban on all of them." Okay, like I just want to say two things. Here's what's provoking me. One, I am a historian of the United States. This is the most American-pilled bullshit when they're like, mm. America's too big to have uniform yeah. laws because mm-hmm. you know how it is. The way people do a thing in Missouri is not like how they do it in New York. And God forbid we protected from discrimination in both. I'm like, what local variations in sex are you referring to? I'm like, I'm sorry, dude, are people's <laughs> genitals very different in different regions of the country? Like, it's such an True absurd point fetish for local democracy as a cover Mm. for oppression it's just like a tale as old as time but second like what the fuck are you even talking about by doing these kinds of compromise things over and over right the biden admin is always like oh i see our opponents are absolute authoritarian oppressors who are targeting a vulnerable minority let's just meet them halfway that'll Mm -hmm. really shut them up so i'm just like who came up with this nonsense? It's so embarrassing. It makes no sense empirically. It's bad as a matter of law. It's a very bad interpretation of Title IX, in my opinion. Don't understand what the point is. And I just want to say to the Biden administration, please, for God's sake, like talk to some real ass trans people for your policies. This is just embarrassing. And it's just a kind of like insult to injury thing in this moment. Yeah. Um, I just it makes yeah. me really sad. And and that's as someone who's absolutely not an organized sports girl. But you know what? I've had to become one because of transphobia. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, That's I resent that. the biggest that yeah. injustice, you know. Uh, how, yeah, how provocative. <laughs> Christina, tell me, tell me you've got some pride after I all that
4: provocation. I do have Ooh. a pride. So as you guys may or may not know, I'm a New England gal. I'm from New Hampshire.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and I am proud of good old Somerville, Massachusetts, yeah. always on the cutting edge It recently became the first city in the U.S. to pass non-discrimination protections for people in poly relationships or other non-traditional quote-unquote family structures. It's interesting to me the way they landed on this. So... They made family or relationship structure a protected class, just like race or gender, that it's now illegal to discriminate on the basis of in employment, uh, in police interactions, and they're considering also applying it to housing. So Somerville is a Boston suburb. It's got about 80,000 people in it. And this is not the first time that they have passed an ordinance protecting polyamorous people and their families. So in 2020, the city council passed an ordinance allowing more than two people to enter into a domestic partnership, um, which means, for instance, like you can visit each other in the hospital and whatever.
5: Right. Um,
4: right. But so interestingly, this came about during the pandemic because Somerville didn't have a domestic partnership law. um, And Mm -hmm. they were like, oh, you know, we're so concerned with COVID. We want people to be able to get on each other's health insurance and whatever. Let's make a domestic partnership ordinance. In the process of doing that, one of the city council members was like, wait, Our initial language in this bill says a domestic partnership is an entity formed by two persons, which discriminates against Somerville's polyfamilies. So they just rewrote it to say, like, an entity formed by multiple people or something like that. And just like that, polycules are a sanctioned relationship structure in Somerville law. So obviously this only applies to a small number of people, even within Somerville. They can't force, like, any large employer to extend health insurance to people's poly families. But city employees, they can say, like, okay, we have to be able to, we have to, you know, recognize domestic partnerships just like any other relationship. Obviously, this is not necessarily heralding the onset of a wave of, like, major American cities or states recognizing polycules as state-sanctioned family structures, but... It's a start. It will be very interesting to see how this plays out in Somerville. I know some other similar places like Berkeley and um, Cambridge Mass and Oakland are also starting to move on recognizing poly families. And it really does feel like, to me, a step towards seeing what it would be like to expand the promise of marriage equality into more right. of a like queerer vision of self-determination in partnership and family structure that we would want for everyone. But how do you say
3: polycule with a Boston accent? Pwolly.
4: Pwolly. Pwolly. I think that's Pwally.
3: how you I got a New Yorker version of it. Yeah, maybe. You hear I... about this pwolly Boston listeners, please call in. Oh, God, we're going to get canceled for this.
2: And we deserve it. No, I want them to call in and tell us how to say it. Yeah, call it. us Yes, in. please, us in. help us out. Yeah. Call in and call us in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Later this month, Apple TV Plus will release a new animated adaptation of The Frog and Toad Stories, the beloved children's series written by Arnold Lobel between 1970 and 1979. These are kid-lit classics, following the gentle adventures of Frog, the more enthusiastic of the pair, and Toad, a curmudgeon who'd usually rather stay home in bed, as they explore their woodland world, search for lost buttons, debate flavors of ice cream, and interact with a menagerie of other animal friends, like the snail mailman that I mentioned earlier. The TV series, I think, is utterly charming and a pretty faithful presentation of the stories, but why are we talking about it here on this queer podcast? because just beneath the lovely text of these tales, there are a host of queer themes at play, most notably that one has to struggle to understand Frog and Toad as anything other than a gay couple, especially when you remember that their creator was indeed a gay man. We'll talk some about the series itself, but we'll also use it as a hopping off point for a discussion (laughs) about how we search for ourselves in mainstream media as kids and how that essential queer practice fits into this moment of book banning and hostile parental oversight of school curricula. But before we leap into that, let's listen to a clip.
0: Hello, Toad. Frog, taste these
2: cookies
1: I have just made. Cookies? Mmm. Are you going to... Ah
2: mm. Well, these
0: are the best
3: cookies you have ever made.!
0: Shall we each have one?
1: Yes, this will be our special treat for the day. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. Mm. that was a special treat
2: all right, so let's start with Frog and toad themselves. I'd love to just hear what y'all's experience with these stories were before like as as kids, uh, and then any initial reactions to to the to the t- Apple TV plus show that that just is coming out
4: I don't actually remember having a strong reaction to it as a kid. I definitely encountered the, you know, intellectual property or whatever, you know, read the books. But I don't think like two male amphibians in a close relationship really struck me as anything particularly poignant or evocative or or even strange. Mm. But watching the show, it was so obviously gay to me that I'm almost amazed that this became a widely beloved children's book, or, Mm. you know, series of books, they're like putting their hands on each other's knees. They're constantly, (laughs) like completely fixated on each other. They're like the light of each other's lives, their entire days revolve around each other. And so it, it made me a little bit sad to think about the fact that I can't imagine a conservative parent showing this these books oh. to their children anymore, mm. Um, mm. especially now that we know that the author was gay, which we didn't know until just a couple of years ago, right?
2: We actually didn't know that until 2016. In a New Yorker article from that year, one of the kids of Arnold Lobel mm. revealed that he had come out as gay later in life, I think in the sort of mid-70s, mm. uh, while, while these books were coming out, while he was writing them. He had been married and had children, and then he, he came out to his family as gay. And uh, then eventually died in the AIDS crisis um, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, we lost a lot of years from him. He had a really interesting quote in that story that I just wanted to share about sort of, he, you know, he never spoke specifically about infusing frog and toad with like gayness. But he did say this quote in an interview in 1977 to a children's book journal. He said, you know, if an adult has an unhappy love affair, he writes about it. He exorcises it out of himself, perhaps, by writing a novel about it. Well, if I have an unhappy love affair, I have to somehow use all that pain and suffering uh, but turn it into a work for children, mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: right? So it's pretty clear that he's working out certain experiences or thoughts or themes in yeah. these, in these uh, stories.
4: I mean, even yeah. just, like, two male characters having such an emotionally supportive Relationship, friendship even seemed yeah. pretty radical to me. And also <laughs> yeah. different from other characters that we might now think of as queer coded, like Bert and Ernie, who perhaps we can talk about later, who I think their shtick was that they were more like exasperated with each other. Whereas mm. Frog and Toad are very different, but they love that about each other, you know, and they're always sort of mm. working to push each other beyond their comfort zones. I was like, this is a very healthy relationship. <laughs> I admire them. What about you, Jules?
3: Yeah, you know, I did like Frog and Toad as a kid. I, you know, famously being from Canada, feel like a lot of the children's literature that I received was sort of, you know, Victorian era. And there was lots of, you know, British kinds of tales of animals doing this and that. And I know Frog and Toad is in fact American, but there was something about that kind of yeah, I mean, just the imaginative space of these kinds of stories. I mean, it's so weird that this is what came up for me, even watching the first episode. I was like, for some reason, the first thing I thought was like, oh, yeah, these animal stories were like, they don't have jobs. They just like live yeah. in a alcoholic <laughs> setting. Yeah. But like, I think I loved that as a kid, this idea of like being able to live in a world within the world, um, which was mm. obviously, I think, my readerly experience too, kind of looking for you know, not not so much like a safe space, but just sort of like an imaginative, fun space where you know everyone, where there's familiarity and intimacy, and like the rules of life are clear and mm-hmm, enjoyable mm-hmm. instead of scary and overwhelming, you know, which is one way maybe to process being a queer child. And I don't know, I think the other thing I that also really came back to me as I was watching, like ah, I don't know what it meant to me as a child, but just like seeing this kind of idea of like a lifelong friendship, like these sorts of companion narratives, a, a sort of faithful, loyal intimacy that endures the test of time and structures your life felt like such a precious offering, I guess, you know, mm. as a young person processing you know, in whatever way I could, the sort of notion that, like, I don't know how I will find different relationship forms and, you know, kinds of attachments that can survive the many difficulties or losses of of, of queer life. And so, yeah, I just love it. And, like, as someone who appreciates... A healthy range of gay emotions. I've just always loved curmudgeonly gays. Yeah. Like I, I just <laughs> yeah. like I just you know I just think they're great, and that like you could still be loved um, even if you're difficult. And yeah, yeah there's just something mm-hmm. about that that I find really lovely. And it's sort of sort of interesting watching the show too. Immediately, I was like, oh. It felt much more like a cartoon I would have watched growing up. What I mean by Mm -hmm. that is like, I felt like the tone wasn't trying to be like edgy or contemporaneous too much in the way that like a lot of cartoons now are like, this is actually for adults. Like this show really does feel like it's for kids, but I loved that. Like it felt so nice. Like maybe it was just recreating that feeling of unplugging from the world that I live in for 25 minutes or whatever but I was like really excited I was like oh episode one it's about like baking cookies and having good boundaries and I was like so there's a message willpower (laughs) yeah willpower I was like there's a message here it's like four kids but I didn't feel like you know the message wasn't all weird and like corporate and like 2023 in ways that I found delightful Mm.
4: yeah and it wasn't fast paced it's the very opposite of like a short attention span show which
3: not rick and morty which is oh my god there's apparently
4: um a show called coco melon that's out right now Mm -hmm. any of the Mm -hmm. parents who listen to the podcast i'm sure will recognize that but my sister was telling me the other day that like some studies showed that coco melon like ruined your kid's brain because the (gasps) like frames go by too quickly Uh that
5: it's you know Uh i mean
4: i don't know how you're supposed to keep a kid's attention span at a, like, healthy range in today's world. But this really just felt like an antidote to shows like that or, you know, the Mm. propaganda of Paw Patrol Patrol. or even the capitalist propaganda of Richard Scary, where it's like, everyone's Mm. a happy worker in this town and, like, everyone's so busy. (laughs) Brian, I mean, as an adorbs little gay child growing up in r- rural South Carolina I don't know I have like a idea of you like sitting on the porch drinking <laughs> your little sweet tea and oh my God. Aww, <laughs> <that's>... <laughs> yes, <laughs> frog and yeah. toad how did you absorb it
2: that portrait is entirely correct uh I loved frog and toad I I you know I, I was thinking I, I don't know if I clocked like I don't I don't know if I had enough gay uh, awareness to like to clock it but I know I remember thinking that it was like a very Peaceful relationship that oh. uh, that attracted me. Um, it's it's one of those I think early queer moments of mm-hmm. recognition where it's not so much about like identity or even like oh. the relationship, but more just that seems lovely that thing that these two guys these two mm-hmm. <laughs> male amphibians <laughs> 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 are doing together and the sort of things they choose choose to do with their lives, the way that they care for each other in these different ways. Yeah, felt like alluring and like a uh, and and like. Uh, peace, peaceful is the word that keeps coming back to mind I don't know mm. uh, if, if peaceful can be a place that you'd like to like find yourself one day right now what I find now knowing that the author was gay I cannot <laughs> watch these new ones without seeing like serious like queer like doing like sophomore level college queer readings of them <laughs> can I like lay a few of these oh my ideas? god I yes just... please Okay, so the one about the letters, yeah. um, where Toad has never gotten a letter, and so Frog goes and writes him a letter, and then it takes a while for the letter to come. Oh my God! Like so much about gay liberation and like mm. Mattachine society versus gay oh, liberation wow. from. Like you just like, have
4: to wait long off. enough. And
2: it'll yeah, Frog is like, "It's coming. The letter's gonna come. You'll get <sighs> the letter one day." And Toad's like, "I'm never gonna get a letter. The letter's wow. not coming
4: for me." Oh my um, gosh! And then when he does get it, he says something very gay, which is like beautiful envelope, what a nice weight, what yes. a fine looking stamp, Ooh. he loves stationery. He,
2: he uh. loves the letter. And then the other one that I like had to go write a term paper about <laughs> was the lost button. So Toad loses a button and they go hunting all around the forest to find the button and collect all of these other buttons mm. um, of all different shapes and sizes and colors. And there's a quote where he says, Toad says, the whole world is covered with buttons and none of them are mine and i'm just picturing like oh, the queer guy. denim jacket with like all of the yeah. like you know different pins <laughs> that you would have seen in like the 70s and then like but do i fit into any of these yeah. Um, Like, me
4: as, like, slightly apolitical and curmudgeonly gay.
2: Yeah, (laughs) and maybe, maybe, you know, I think so much of it, to me anyway, seems so clearly coming from this pre-Stonewall kind of closeted gay consciousness that is, of course, grappling with the changes that are happening in the 70s, obviously, but has a kind of older gay, like, you meet folks, you're used to meet folks like this more often who just who had who grew up in a different mindset and have you know some some hope for for things but also some uh, resistance or fears and and I feel like that really suffuses the stories I don't know if that resonates with with y'all yeah. or not
4: I mean you have a really good quote in a blog post that you wrote about oh. <laughs> um, the author coming out as gay or you know the, the posthumous yeah. revelation that he was gay in 2016 Because I had thought about Frog and Toad as like, actually, maybe it's kind of sad to think about this same gender pair living together Uh. as best friends, maybe being secret lovers, but like, you know, having to like, celebrate their own lives behind closed doors. But you wrote in 2016, Frog and Toad's companionship is a portrait of gay love that's reserved and slightly melancholy, but fiercely protective and devoted. It's a style you often find in descriptions of gay relationships as they existed before liberation made visibility a community value. And I was like, oh yeah, that what we think of as like a very sad closeted life might not feel like that to everyone or might not have felt like that as at the time, Mm -hmm. especially Minus other examples of how life could be you know lived more mm. openly, I mean, I feel like we've talked about this in the past too that sometimes visibility is a, um, a burden I want to say imperative. yeah <laughs> yes, totally totally that it's you know yeah. there's a, a downside to it too.
3: I used to teach a lot of children's literature, so I've been you know thinking back on on some of the different conversations I've had with students over the years because it was always interesting to me you know to talk to especially Gen Z, you know, college students who had grown up with more explicitly pro-LGBT or inclusive kinds of forms of representation, and to, one, sort of break down the idea that there was no queer content, like, prior to that era, and mm-hmm. talk about what was queer, but also to think about the different messages that come through, because, I mean, maybe I am, I am an old, so I'm old-fashioned, Um, but I, I kind of, like prefer and it was so refreshing to see a contemporaneous version of this kind of kind of queer narrative that's more about, yeah, like that kind of quiet, happy confidence and um this sort of expressive calmness and stillness as opposed to the kind of weird, winky winky, sometimes like inclusion where it's like, oh, did you see that for two seconds in that (laughs) Pixar movie that a woman held another woman's hand? And I'm like that to me is just not interesting culturally, like even setting aside my critique of it as, as cheap marketing. I'm like, it just, that doesn't do anything for me story wise. And I'm not sure. I mean, I think about this all the time. I grew up in the nineties. A thing that I've strongly cling to as someone who has been an English professor before is that meaning is not as literal as we think. And exposing people Mm. to like concepts or words or language doesn't necessarily like, do something philanthropic, right? And so I think back on my own childhood, and it's like, was very obvious to everyone that I was queer and probably also just like, obviously a girl. And, you know, there was maybe never a moment where anyone said that to me out loud, or I never said it to myself. I don't really think I needed that. And I also don't think, like, a cartoon being like, here is a transgender child would have, like, done anything for me. I could have very Mm -hmm. well consumed that and nothing would have happened. I certainly consumed stories that weren't for kids, but consumed stories that explained that there were gay and trans people. It didn't mean anything to me as a kid. But these kinds of narratives provided me so much more in terms of, like, creating a lush kind of like aesthetic interiority and fantasy life that actually like was really meaningful and helped me feel resilient and special precisely by not having to name it. And it's like that thing where I want to be like, I don't literally identify with, toad because that's like not my gender although I will say of course we know famously some frogs do change sex under the right <laughs> circumstances right. Um, right. so maybe toad could be a very beautiful toad one day but like yeah. I don't need that literal identification to get something out of it I didn't need that as a child and it's not what mm. I feel attached to as an adult and I just I don't know I, I just really you know was thinking that that one thing that kind of annoys me about the sort of political fighting over all of this today is that You know, the right might get angry, however disingenuous they are. I'm like, I don't even care about that stuff. Like, stop pinning these weird representational moments on me and my people. Like, we're not really necessarily asking for that. And what's really interesting and queer, I think kind of more subversive, is this kind of storytelling, which also seems rarer. I mean, I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum. I'm sure it's cool to grow up seeing like, named gay or trans characters in kids' culture, I'm sure. That's great. But, like, I don't know. Just give me a frog and a toad who don't wear shirts but do wear blazers. Um, (laughs) And so, like, just are rocking a look. I mean, I think that's great. I do think the
4: point, what I see as the greater value of some of this children's media that does name, like, oh, this person has two moms or whatever, is so that when they go out in the world and meet people who are queer or trans, they're not jerks or they're not yes. confused or whatever. They're like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. Whatever. Like mm. uh, just to sort of introduce them to the concept. Yeah. I've also been thinking about the different ways that queer coded girls characters showed up.
5: Mm. Cause I think
4: that the ones, like I'm thinking of Harriet, the spy, yeah. even like Pippi Longstocking, yeah. <laughs> It feels like it was more, you know, Tomboys who hang out with the guys, or even like angsty loners. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. as much like two kind, gentle, like Mm. women (laughs) living as one, you know, who are like quote unquote platonic partners, but actually we know they're together. And I think it's because if you had two female frogs living, you know, as neighbors and, and, life partners and deeply caring for another like that would not be n- nearly as subversive yeah. or suspect as two male frogs doing that because women are expected to be gentle and nurturing and create close emotional connections with their friends so you'd be like yeah these well, are and two the whole best history friends of, like
2: the spinsters living I mean that's there's like a whole language yeah to that, totally right? that, that whereas yeah. when like
4: two male characters are such close friends it's like whoa That's interesting. That's
5: Mm -hmm. like
4: that creates a a new type of story in my mind because these stories are not about sex um, because obviously they're children's media. I think they can actually explore more of what being queer as an identity is um, Mm -hmm. outside of the like sexual and romantic part of it. Mm. Almost more so than a lot of like (laughs) contemporary depictions of queer adults.
3: Totally.
2: I'm glad that you both. Found, you use the word sort of subversive, or that this was maybe more powerful than some of these other modes of representation, because I wrote down a, a, I thought sort of a provocative question, but I actually don't think it's that provocative. Which is like, this is kind of indoctrination, right? Tell like, I, like watching this sh- watching this show, I was like, wow. If I were a conservative parent, you know, who was was homophobic and transphobic, I would find this terrifying because yeah, it really—it's very effective. Yes. Like it, like really does show you like a beautiful vision of what you know. Even if you don't like, for, you don't even have to assume that they're like together, right. you, But just the way they relate is queer mm. in our broken masculinity world that we live in. And all you know the, the, the other characters that they interact with many of them seem seem queer in different <laughs> ways and it's like and everybody seems to be having a lovely time mm-hmm. and that's and that's what they're afraid of, right yeah. the right. kids and it's, the kids might see that. yeah it's like
4: also just the frog and toad being soft and vulnerable with one another. Right. And it's not like a frog eat frog situation. I even that to me seems so yeah. threatening to everything these people hold dear, like all the book banning types. I don't think we can move on without talking about Bert and Ernie, particularly Mm -hmm. because there was a moment in 2013 when the Supreme Court overturned DOMA in United States versus Windsor and the New Yorker published a cover. (laughs) Right. (laughs) This is so fucking crazy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Depicting Bert with his arm around Ernie on the sofa watching the Supreme Court on the television. June Thomas, our very own, wrote a blog (laughs) post in Slate Saying that this was an insulting way to commemorate this civil rights victory, in part because the creators of Bert and Ernie have emphasized many times that these characters do not exist beneath the waist. That's a direct quote. <laughs> um,
5: and these are takes like place fake. The waist, so. the,
4: yeah, <laughs> they're they're desexualized. Although you're right, sex can be a lot of things, Jules. True. And mm-hmm. as June put it, Bert and Ernie clearly love each other. But does mm. Ernie suck Bert's cock? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Asking
2: the real question. Iconic, questions. iconic quote. And so
4: I'm kind of like, well, yeah. yeah, it was a very desexualized way to celebrate queer marriage, but also it made me think about why do we think characters like this are gay? And maybe it's also because our society devalues platonic love such that we mm, can't hey. accept that two people who aren't romantic and sexually involved with one another could actually be the most important people in each other's lives.
3: Yes. Oh, wow, so well said. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like that's mm-hmm. the thing I've always thought about Burton Ernie is that it's like more a portrayal of like being too neurotic to be successfully (laughs) heterosexual, right? It's more like, it's like these two guys who shouldn't really be roommates anymore, they drive each other crazy, and it's, like, this very, like, New York humor, right? It's Mm -hmm, like, you know, mm -hmm. guys who've just been roommates since college, and, like, they'll never, like, they're not actually gay, but, like, they have this kind of relationship (laughs) that is, like, supposed to be funny, as in neurotic, as in blocking their, like, proper heterosexuality which you mm-hmm. um so that like it is that we can't value that right like we don't have a cultural value system other than humor um and it is funny but like yeah I've never I don't remember ever watching Burton Ernie as a kid and being like wow that's very appealing I want to be like <laughs> that like you and like To be perfectly honest, neither a Burton nor an Ernie are my type anyways, like IRL. Mm. So I was just always like, people like that I do not find attractive, so they deserve each other. But that's the whole point, right? It's like, it's not really, yeah, I think there is this kind of like, gay coding, right? That's just about homophobia on some level, and that seems to Mm. me quite a contrast with Frog and Toad, which I felt was much more celebratory.
4: Yeah, and utopian even. Yeah, Yeah,
3: exactly. There's nothing utopian about having to pay rent in a rat-infested New York apartment (laughs) where you can't afford to live by yourself in a (laughs) one-bedroom.
4: But they do take baths together, right? Well, you know, because the water
3: bill's expensive. The water's expensive, (laughs) yeah. The super won't fix the hot water tank. There's so many explanations for this, Christina. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so
2: that's all the time we have for talking about Frog and Toad and Bert and Ernie today. But we would love to hear um, what our listeners think uh, about all of this. If you have uh, feedback, you know where to reach us. That's at outwardpodcast.slate.com. And just as a reminder, Frog and Toad premieres on Apple TV Plus on April 28th. I anticipate a big culture war blow up around it. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, check in next month and see if, that, if that's <laughs> happened or not around this sweet little show. <laughs>
4: From 2015 to 2021, Daniel M Lavery inhabited the persona of Slate's Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence is the advice columnist introduced in 1997 who's shepherded Slate readers through all of life's upsets and quandaries, neighborly disputes and weird behaving relatives, affairs and workplace conflicts and webs of lies that are about to cave in. You've got your privacy invading parents, your exasperating kids, your romantic partner who refuses to provide toilet paper for his guests and insists that they all use the bidet, you know, that kind of thing. For more than five years, Danny considered hundreds of variations on these themes and gave readers one man's perspective on how they might pick their way through. So each generation's prudence, and there've been several of them, has brought their own sensibility to the project. Danny's era, in my opinion, was marked by humility, a broad sense of structural inequities, and maybe most importantly, the belief that personal autonomy is worth protecting at almost any cost, that there should be something very wrong going on to warrant meddling in or opining on someone else's life. And for reasons we'll get into, I'm sure, his time as Prudy was also distinguished by just a mountain of emails he received from people with questions related to their own trans and queer identities or an LGBT who had surfaced in some part of their life. In his new book, Dear Prudence, Liberating Lessons from Slate.com's Beloved Advice Column, Danny shares his thoughts on the purpose of the advice columnist, and he revisits some recurring themes that he draws out in dozens of reprinted letters and responses. It's a really rewarding read, even for people like me who read most of those letters when they were first printed. Uh, I found it really hard to put down. So I'm really thrilled that we have Daniel on the show this month to chit-chat about it. Danny, welcome to Outward.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here.
4: Unfortunately, Brian couldn't join us for this segment, so it'll just be me and Jules grilling Danny to filth. I'm wondering if you feel there's anything particularly queer about the advice columnist, the sort of Mm. like put on authority of the persona, the gossip, the like gentle reading and scolding. Is there anything that screams queer to you about
0: that role? I I feel so lovingly shepherded by that question.
3: Um, <laughs> like, welcome to the gay podcast. Is this thing you did queer?
0: Yeah. <laughs> especially the gently scolding. Like, yeah, at that point, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I suppose it's not the most exciting answer, but I think it certainly can be, especially the idea of uh, gently scolding people. Uh, I don't know if I would be prepared to go so far as to say that advice giving is itself definitively Uh, gay or not gay. But I I like the idea. I mean, why not? Who's it going to hurt? Yeah. Giving advice is gay. (laughs) Absolutely.
4: So at a certain point during your tenure, you transitioned in the public eye. How did that public identity as prudence affect the way you were able to sort of come to terms with your own identity and roll it out for everyone to see?
0: Part of what this reminds me of is I, every time I hear the subtitle of the book uh, read aloud, it reminds me of the sort of in between position of like Slate.com's beloved columnist is such a. <laughs>
5: right.
4: Like
0: there's so much like bathos there. It's just like beloved <laughs> from one website.com. Uh, so it's like <laughs> just. Wait,
4: you, you read that as Slate.com loves that columnist?
0: I, I think it's more just like. Either you're beloved enough to just be beloved, or uh, it's like beloved by like Usenet or like <laughs> this particular person. Well, as an employee of, of Slate.com,
4: I really appreciate that analogy. <laughs>
0: no, it's just like there's something about. Like, do you remember when people would sort of like self-deprecatingly refer to if they got their work into the online edition of the New Yorker, but not the New Yorker print edition, mm. they would say like, I'm in the New com," and would really emphasize dot .com. Uh-huh. Oh, like, yes. There's just something about like, it's not like, <laughs> oh, Casey Kasem is retiring and the whole nation knows <laughs> your voice. It's, it's niche. Anyways, all of this is just to say, I love Slate.com. I'm not trying <laughs> to say this is some like backwoods website no one's ever heard of, just like It's just public enough to technically qualify for the public eye, but it's also, like, I was not hosting, like, American Bandstand um, (laughs) or, or like you know, being beamed into, you know, millions of homes nationwide. So just enough, I think, publicly to feel self-conscious, not so Mm. public that it was like, please, I just want to transition in peace and I can't even go to the grocery store without people (laughs) saying, it's you, you're that person who sometimes tells strangers what to do in a column. Um, So certainly, I you know, uh, I think because we're all a certain degree of self-obsessed and then especially if you add transitioning and being a writer on top of that, I felt very like, I cannot believe I'm going to be transitioning in the public eye. And some people will be looking at my picture once in a while. But it was also (laughs) very like, my fear about it in the beginning was way higher than what it was actually like. So Mm. I was very like, oh my God, my voice is going to change on this Mm. podcast. I'm going to have to get out ahead of the story as if I were like (laughs) in succession. (laughs) <laughs> and in, in real life, it ended up being a lot easier to deal with, a lot more similar to the rest of my life than dissimilar. So it, certainly it was a little nerve wracking and certainly it influenced uh, the timing of when I came out. Um, but it also was not uh, totally removed from coming out at any job. Um, so that was nice. I think actually it would have been worse if I were, in fact, under like massive national scrutiny every week. That would have been more difficult.
3: I think part of the idea of what it means to transition publicly as like a kind of trope or concept, which like, I'm even remembering like, okay, literally as a professor, I lit- barely, barely in the public. I was like, Oh, I can't believe I have to do this in public. Too. I was like, what public, like my students in my classroom. But like, you know, so much of the notion of public transition is about visuality, right. Is about hmm. like being seen. And, and I guess I was just sort of curious if you felt like one, I could imagine you know, because part of, I think, what is weird about being early in transition for a lot of people is that you come to understand just how social gender is, and so it ends up, like, all being not about you. It's all about, are other people extending the generosity towards me that I need to feel good? And also, what are all of the ways people are devolving their uncomfortability, their own anxiety, their own gendered shit, like, onto me, and our relationships are, you know, straining? But But I have to imagine if, like, On the one hand, you have this textually mediated relationship of like reading people's letters and replying to them where you have time to craft a reply. But also that's very intimate and very social. And and I'm just Mm. sort of curious, like one way maybe to measure it is quantitative. Like, do you feel like after you became, you know, the the, the publicly trans person you know, Prudy did like, you start getting a bunch of letters from trans people because that also feels like a tale as old as time. Public trans people just get letters from trans people being like, I'm trans too, help me. Um, But Mm -hmm. like, you know, in this case, technically, that was part of what you were out there to do. But also like, did the, do you feel like letters in general change? Like when people are also like, now I'm writing to, I mean, not like it works that simply, right? But people who are like, I'm writing to, you know, this man Prudence, you know, (laughs) and like, I don't know, I'm just kind of curious, like, If it felt like just as a weird genre you know as this kind of epistolary role did it start to feel like a weird form of gender um or did people sort of treat you differently or did the letters start to
5: change
0: yeah i definitely noticed an uptick in letters from trans people Mm. also a slight uptick uh, in letters from cis people Uh, dealing with trans people in their lives, but that one was not as significant an uptick. I'd already been Mm -hmm. getting some, so it wasn't like night and day difference. Mm
5: -hmm.
0: Aside from that uptick, I don't think I noticed... A ton of different. It it wasn't like wow, people are writing to me in these really different ways, Mm. uh, or all of a sudden they're you know beginning each letter with like a totally different type of greeting or a way of acknowledging me that feels wildly different. And and I think part of that is still just because so much more of the content is. geared towards writing to advice columnists which is already Mm. kind of its own genre so um you know maybe i would have experienced more of a difference if i had been in a different type of public facing job um Mm. but you know a mild uptick in like some just like i've i've heard that you've transitioned and i have an opinion about that but Mm. not (laughs) massive either and like again easy to screen so uh Yeah, maybe not as different as I would have expected. Um, Because again, just like in your Mm -hmm. own head, everything you do is the most important and, you know, culture changing thing in the world. And then it goes out into the social world and like every once in a while you're right, but mostly it's filtered through everyone else's self-obsession, which is good. um, (laughs) Because if everyone was as obsessed with me as I am, um, my life would be very, very difficult.
4: (laughs) And also, I mean, your tenure, 2015 through 2021, really matched up with a time in society where trans people became a lot more visible in public life and the public discourse sort of exploded in ways that were... um, mostly terrible. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if you got an uptick in letters about that for that reason, too. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I have an right. opinion on trans things, or I'm feeling more self-conscious about my response to a trans person in my life, or just like, oh, I'm feeling more comfortable with the possibility of transitioning. So let me, like, search the internet for people who I can talk to about that.
0: Yeah. I do think probably the biggest shift that was slightly different about This job than and other public facing jobs is yeah Jules as you were saying like it's something that is so socially mediated and in most of the areas of my transition you know changes were relatively gradual people were adjusting I was adjusting on a day by day basis but the the thing about the column was I had that one big picture like you have your Prudence headshot Mm -hmm. and even when I started the Prudence job like I'd gotten to go do headshots. And so it was already a day that didn't look quite like how I normally looked. Like, it was just very, like, professional blush on hair. (laughs) I tried to comb it. um, And so it looked very, like, this is a gal. Um, (laughs) This is a gal from the steno pool. And so then there was also that question of I wanted to, like, keep pushing out a replacement headshot as long as I possibly could um, to, to get a little further away from it. But then also the longer I waited, the more it just... It was like this face just staring at me with this stupid grin and i was just like please leave me alone (laughs) self
3: of course we live in the era where the accusation of main character syndrome has become like almost a meme um and so i don't know you know it's it's funny because advice columns you know have a very long history but there's an interesting way that like i'm just always trying to imagine being in the position of being the letter writer and there is something you know kind of helpfully narcissistic about it right like here and, and you're in control of the narrative right here's the way i'm presenting my dilemma here's how i describe myself and and i just you know i often like to contrast you know dear prudence with like the way people say on twitter attack you know reddit am i the asshole um mm-hmm. threads or something where like this is made up or we don't believe these people's stories they're liars they're just creating fake drama and and it occurs to me that maybe part of the interesting you know, almost like, I don't know, ethos or meditative practice of of giving advice is in some ways, like taking the opportunity of someone presenting themselves as a main character. And then the relief of sort of finding out as you were sort of just opining on about all the ways that what we anticipate when we inflate the importance of ourselves relative to the rest of the world that makes us anxious, the kind of relief of realizing, oh, it's not actually going to be that weird, right? Like, oh, actually, transitioning is not actually that complicated, or, you know, all these ways I think gender is going to be so real, like turn out to not be so annoying and not so rigid. And my predictive model was kind of wrong insofar as I got sort of lost in my own thoughts. Now I'm just diagnosing myself on air. But like, you know, (laughs) I'm just sort of, I'm curious if that's another way in which there is something kind of queer, you know, kind of, you know, queer as an attitude about about answering letters is that like, you know, living a queer and trans life in particular, one thing it can impart as wisdom is a sort of ability to deflate the drama uh, that kind of gets thrown at us as either like, there's something wrong with you that you need to fix it's like a moral problem or it's just existential right it's like ah no one's ever done hard things like this before and it's like well some people have actually and you know and like and actually don't worry it might not be as like crisp and clear as like a melodrama but Mm -hmm. you might actually be happy that it's not does that does that kind of lad for you
0: very much so. I think, especially, I, I realize this wasn't the focus of your question, but thinking about the sort of difference between uh, how someone might react to an advice column question versus someone submitting for like public discussion, hmm. and you know, if you had to assign asshole status to someone in this story, who would you choose? And as you were saying, that often there's like a chorus of responses that's like, "This is fake," and I think it's really interesting to think about. Other people's stories often seem implausible in ways that our own stories don't. And uh. so one of the things that I, I think – I think I became more credulous over time as a result mm. of doing the column because it just felt like – again, not to not to say like nothing's any different from anything else. And like a total lie is the same as a story that you've like slightly embellished. Um, I, I don't mean to go that far. But I do think that – When everyone has to describe their life and their problem in three paragraphs and they're only telling you Mm -hmm. a stranger and they have the power to control which details come in, like, I I think everybody is at least going to do a little bit of dance with lying and like implausibility and lying is going to come up all the time. So, yeah, this idea that either someone is totally making up a story out of whole cloth as opposed to sensible objective people who can see their life story from everybody's angle and represent Mm -hmm. them faithfully is just like, I don't know that the distinction is that crystal clear, but absolutely to your general question. I I think that one of the things that can be really useful um, in in like queer and trans cultures is like leashing the power of the melodramatic figure Mm -hmm. in your own head. And so I, I sometimes talk about how, for a certain type of gay person, often one of the first ways your gayness sort of manifests itself in childhood is a sort of, like, commitment to acting like you're a celebrity. Like, there was a degree to which, like, way before I, it had any sort of, like, subject or target, my queerness showed up as, like, I was eight and kind of grandiose. And, like, don't you know who I am? And it's like, <laughs> who are you? You're an eight-year-old. You're, you're not anybody. Like, And then also ways that, like, the straight family can be really, like... Mm campy and over the top about your queerness and like this is a huge problem and we need to discuss it and everyone's like grabbing the banister and like squeezing out (laughs) unshed tears so their eyes are gleaming and it's like you're all being very dramatic about something you're not willing to name and that's confusing for me at eight and again like if you're not careful that can take over and everyone gets lost Mm -hmm. in the melodrama but if you know how to turn it into a character if you know when to Utilize it when to restrain it. When to say mm. like, "This is here. This doesn't have to be the only aspect of the story." Or, or even just if, if almost every gay person has that little celebrity moment of, "Don't you know who I am?" That defangs it a little bit. It makes it less uh, dangerously narcissistic and more narcissistic in a way that can enable us all to connect with one another and recognize, mm. like, "All right, if we've all got this little far side diva up in our head, then I, I, you know, I'm not." terminally unique uh and i can share that uh part of myself with others uh without thinking she needs to be in charge
4: the sense of being terminally unique um, uh really
0: resonates with me it's gonna haunt me <laughs> yeah i you know especially after uh, i went through my like estrangement with my family i i think mm-hmm. i got really caught up in a certain like narrative of self-pity for a while and especially in like my own support circles was very like in the back of my head like I don't think everybody here realizes but like I've got a really bad dad mm. and then eventually kind of gently being able to be like you know I bet actually a lot of people can relate to that um, <laughs> and not that you don't get to feel your own feelings or experience your own story or say like yeah what, what you went through is difficult it's just like you didn't invent that like you guys won't believe this but my parents were religious and dangerous and it's like yeah that's happened a lot mm. you did not invent that and it's a good thing that you are not terminally unique yeah. like that's yeah. the thing yeah. it's like the good news is this didn't just happen to you as opposed to like oh no your special thing you've lost it
4: i want to talk about one letter you include in the book which is from a reader who identified as a recreational crossdresser. And expressed a desire to transition, but felt ambivalent about what she called the LGBT agenda, uh, and was concerned that you know LGBTs are pushing that agenda on children. She said she thought trans women should be barred from sports. What was it like for you to sort of confront that element of our you know so-called community? and, and how did you approach it? answering that letter? <sighs>
0: Uh, Yeah, I do remember that one. I remember uh, wanting to approach it carefully because I felt like the thing that will be really easy in this letter is to get incredibly Mm self-righteous and to, you know, just go right to actually it's a really good idea to support your community (laughs) to like a series of imaginary like cheers and finger snaps and just like (laughs) – and that's often a temptation for me. And I think it would be a temptation for any advice columnist because you're in a yeah. position of being asked for your opinion multiple times in a row. And it's just difficult not to, at a certain point, think, I must really be an expert in something. Um, mm. So I-, I wanted to sort of like defang that because I also imagined that it was possible she was writing that in the sort of hope that I would re- react with some suspicion, some hostility, so she could feel additionally misunderstood. Like, look at the welcome I've received from my own peoples, Mm. um, and no wonder I need to think of myself as um, more unlike other trans people than like them. So Mm. I, I think kind of a combination of as you had mentioned earlier, and the importance of autonomy, certainly I, I really do feel this to be true. Which is, you don't need to feel solidarity with other trans people in order to transition. It might make some things more difficult. I certainly think it's a good thing to, uh, you know, look for uh, common experiences, things that you share, uh, foster solidarity. But you certainly don't have to. And if she wants to uh, transition, and also not like most other trans people, she should do that. You know, I think we can all think of a few people who have done it. <laughs> um, no need to name names, but it happens and it works and it's fine. Uh, but then just also, like, I think if you focus on reasons that you feel different from other trans people, you will always find them. And that will probably make you feel more alienated than you need to. I- again, not even like forget the differences, just like look for uh, things that you do have in common uh, rather than seek out evidence that you're better off or, or have a better insight imagine that there might be something you could learn from other trans people in addition to things that you want other trans people to change their minds about. Uh,
4: Your answer was really admirable from my perspective because you really resisted that temptation to sort of do the sort of like, you know, call out and clap back and whatever, which I think is may have even felt satisfying to do at the time. But like you actually took the time to think about, uh, take this person at their word, believe that they may be also writing in for some help and ideas about how to work through what may actually feel like dissonance in their mind. And I really enjoyed reading the way you responded to them because I think Mm. it's also helpful for other people who are queer and trans, I think, to recognize that people like that letter writer exist and that, you know, they're part of the loosely held community as well. And also there are a lot of different ways to be trans and queer in the world and this is the way some people choose to do it and um you know yeah I hope they got something out of your letter
0: yeah and and you know to be clear I think part of the reason I wanted to resist it in that letter was there's other times lots of times when I've absolutely just like seen the big pot of honey and not noticed the big box uh, up on toothpicks behind it and just been like <laughs> right. I'm going to tell you that you're doing everything wrong and I'm going to get really up on my high horse and just scold you all day. And that, you know, it always feels really empty afterwards because it's just mm. like, yeah, I was right. And you were wrong. And then it's sort of like, well, where did we get from that? Yeah. Um, so to, to to just really be clear, I've done that a ton. <laughs> I, I, I'm absolutely not someone who is naturally given towards like calm considered reflection and not looking for the easy dunk. It is an ongoing struggle with me to resist the easy dunk. um, And it's something that I hope I will get better at, but I'm not there yet.
4: (laughs) All right. Uh, Danny, I think it's time that we give you an advice question to answer, (laughs) since we have you here. So this question was actually featured on Slate.com's Dear Prudence column a couple weeks ago, but since we have the privilege of your company, we couldn't let you go without getting your opinion on it. Here's the letter.
1: Dear Prudence, I recently came out as trans. That went as well as can be expected. There's just one reaction that I would really, really like some advice on. I live in the same neighbourhood as my sister, brother-in-law, and absolutely adorable four-year-old nephew. One of the initial explanations my sister gave to him was that aunt, former name, is dead, and now you have an uncle, name. As might be expected, he took this literally. He's not upset because he knows I'm alive, but he is now announcing to people that his aunt is dead. I don't blame him for this. He's four. The problem is that my sister and brother-in-law think that this is hilarious. They play along with his interpretation and encourage him to tell people. This has led to one of my co-workers coming over to check that I'm not dead. One of my cousins texted to check in. So far, nobody who's taken it to me has been more than mildly concerned, but I don't feel that this is a good bit to keep encouraging. Their argument is that he's four, it's cute, and we'll laugh about it in a few years. My argument is that they, his parents, are not for It upsets me and confuses other people and that my nephew, a very sweet boy, would not be happy if he was aware that he was doing something that upsets me. I'm at the point of wanting to explain to him that someone being dead is not something to tell everyone. I think that this would teach him a good social skills lesson and potentially solve my problem without requiring a huge explanation about transphobia. My main worry is that I don't want him to feel like any of this is his fault. And I don't want my frustration with the situation to make him feel like I'm frustrated at him. I also wonder if they're right. And I'm overreacting to funny kid behavior. Not dead.
4: So, Danny, what do you think?
0: Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, this is both very sweet. And I totally understand why it's uh, not the ideal situation. Like, it's a little bit like when um, Principal Skinner and Homer name their barbershop quartet, and they're like, "What should we name ourselves? It should be something that's kind of funny at first, but gets less funny every time you hear it." And they settle on the <laughs> B sharps, <laughs> and it's a little bit like this. Like, sure, that's like kind of cute in the context of everyone else is like taking the news well, as opposed mm-hmm. to right. there are also adults saying, "It feels like someone died." Yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, I put such a sarcastic little throb in my voice for that, and it's like partly because I think that's a very weirdly manipulative way of putting it, but I also don't want to suggest yes. that anyone who feels any type of way about a relative's transition is automatically insincere or has no right to express those feelings. So I, I'd like to decrease half of that sarcasm, but keep some <laughs> of it in reserve. Um, and, and I thought Jenny's point about probably the best way to do this is to talk to the parents is a good one, if only because I think that's strategically sound because yeah. it, you know if you talk to your uh, nephew directly and then the parents get mad at you they're going to make things harder for you so not in the sense of like it's it's not allowed to talk to your nephew and say like hey I'm not dead knock it off or like in a nicer way because a four year old doesn't really understand knock it off um, but it, it will be I think good to go through the parents for that but yeah I share this like it's both true that four year olds are not amazing at uh, some concepts but also i I do think that there are alternatives to somebody is dead somebody else is here and i suppose this is just i'm hedging so many bets but i want to say both i think in the next couple of years you're going to be able to uh Mm -hmm. add to uh the four-year-old's conceptual understanding of transition so it's not always going to be this like simplistic someone's gone someone's here um but yeah to just frame it to your uh siblings as well as to the kid like well i changed but nobody died and Mm -hmm. again i think the kid kind of knows that i don't think the kid literally thinks my aunt died and this uncle took over
4: um and if there's anything i know about kids it's that once they see somebody laughing at something they said in like a oh that's so cute way they'll say it over and over and over again so i wonder if part of the problem is that the sister and brother-in-law think it's very funny. And so every time the kid says it, the kid gets a reaction. And so even though the mm. kid knows that, you know, his aunt didn't die and his uncle is now here, he's going to keep saying it because it's it's getting him positive attention.
0: Just like when I was seven and I found out that I could sing the theme to Gilligan's Island in the style of Elvis <laughs> and all the adults <laughs> in my life thought that was really funny. And so I would do it all the time. Exactly like that
4: right and the kid might
3: also just be picking up on the parents their their anxiety right their mm-hmm. unresolved anxiety about this person's gender and is like well that's weird parents are not handling this well here's a line that gets a reaction like you mm-hmm. know I mean it's just such a again it's like these one of these perfect situations about just the sheer sociality of it all and the way that like you know that's like adults handle things one way kids handle them another but a narrative about these weird narratives we bring in these like allegories to explain things in life instead of confronting them head on and just being realistic thinking that, you know, so often it's about protecting a kid from something they can't understand. it's like, no, I'm pretty sure what would be hard to understand is if someone came to me and said, like, "This person is dead, and but also is another person." That seems very confusing. <laughs> like, no, I, I'm very judgmental. So clearly I'm not good at giving advice, but I'm just like, yeah, I think these, these narratives get in the way, right? They're a way to avoid difficult feelings, but sometimes like biting the bullet or ripping off that band-aid, it's like it's not actually that complicated. It's mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, you know, Uncle, hey, we already got the word. That's easy."
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think I was wondering, you know, again, this could be way off. But one of the things that I was sort of curious about was, if the letter writer has a family where there's often some like, ribbing that goes on mm. if part of why the sister and brother-in-law have been encouraging it is like they feel like things are generally going well and they might not even be conscious of this but like yeah. now that you're transitioning we're a little worried because it seems like sometimes trans people are really sensitive and That'll really kill joys. Mm. and so if there's like a kind of fun little running family joke and and you know if we feel like the kid does get it like there's that line about you know he's yeah. not upset he knows I'm alive so it's possible that the parents are kind of thinking like this is a, a test balloon. and if you can mm. take this joke then we're gonna feel more comfortable and at ease and so that's not to say then that that's good and you need to play along with it so much as just that might be a potential element that's going on here um, and if you read that or hear that and you think like no that's not that doesn't describe my family we're not big rivers feel free to dismiss it but mm. in that case you know I, I think it would be potentially helpful to talk about like I, I do want to be able to, tease one another or maybe you don't right maybe it's like I get that you guys like the teasing and I don't want to be jumping down your throats about stuff but this is something that I would prefer not to be teased about so even with the understanding that you can't necessarily get a four-year-old to stop saying anything um, at least you could cut down on the adult encouragement or say like hey go tell that stranger that your aunt's dead
4: yeah yeah Um, yeah continue to make fun of me for my like weird looking pinky toe and not about my transition.
0: And that's what's so hard, right? Like it's often the things we don't realize that we're really sensitive about being teased about. They're not the things that we want. Like sometimes there's things I want to be lighthearted about. And if someone makes a joke that I know is lighthearted and meant warmly, and I'm just having a rough time with that particular aspect of myself, I can't get there. I just go straight to, and you're killing me. Um,
3: (laughs) But not because I'm already dead.
0: Yeah, there's that gay narcissism (laughs) and melodrama again. And so sometimes I have to genuinely stop and think like, sometimes I really am being both trans and hypersensitive. Mm. And that's not to say this letter writer is. It's just like, (laughs) it's a difficult question. Sometimes our families like to tease about things that just really get under our skin. And they feel like this is bringing us closer together. And we feel like you're kicking me in my sore spot. And it makes Mm -hmm. me want to not be around you. And that's one of the reasons that being in a family is hard.
4: Yeah. Well, thank you so much to this reader for this letter. And I'm also just glad to hear that it feels like in general, your family's being supportive and also that you have this awesome nephew who you get to share this moment with. Danny, it was so great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us
0: it was just wonderful to get to chat with you both. Thank you so much.
4: Again, Danny's new book is called Dear Prudence, Liberating Lessons from Usenet. I mean, sorry, Slate.com's beloved advice column.
3: (laughs) Sadly, that's about it for this month. But before we go, we have your monthly updates to the gay agenda. Christina, do you want to kick us off?
4: Yeah, I want to recommend the comedian Mae Martin's new Netflix stand up special called Sap. They're very cute. Their style is not for everyone, I'll say. They're sort of like (laughs) a lot of awkward laughter and like uh, they have a little bit of like a tense personality. Mm. I, I happen to like it and think they're really funny, but the special is very. Special. <laughs> a lot of it is about things they remember from their youth, like ridiculous stories about their parents, their exes, sort of classic comedy stuff. And then, as seems to be the case with a lot of comedy specials these days, the last, I want to say, fifth of it is gets a little more serious. Oh. They talk about um, their period of dealing with drug addiction as a teenager, and also about how frustrating it is as. non-binary trans person to try to convince people who say like they don't understand all this gender stuff that like Uh, actually maybe you don't have to understand it or even necessarily empathize uh, with it but just like accept it (laughs) accept that people are who they say they are i thought this was particularly interesting and a a brave thing to do you know Mm -hmm. obviously netflix had that awful and transphobic dave chappelle special
5: Mm -hmm. so
4: may does not rag on Netflix directly. I don't think they ever say like Netflix, the person who's paying me for this special did this terrible thing. But they do name Dave Chappelle and some of these other comedians that have had transphobic bits recently. And they have a funny little bit about having a fantasy that like their special is going to be the thing that convinces these guys to like (laughs) lay off and stop talking about trans people. I always admire somebody who can make Incredibly overwhelming and maddening things, funny. Um, so, I really want to commend Mae Martin for this special. It's very sweet and funny. Again, it's called Sap. What about you guys?
3: I have a kind of less fun one, but, but an important one. You know, I, I want to recommend an article that will give some context to the name on everyone's lips this, these days Comstock. Uh, you might have heard this old 19th century law, the Comstock Act. Of 1873 which is coming up because of the absolute bonkers attempt by a federal judge in texas to single-handedly um force the fda to remove approval from Mifepristone, um you know a pill that that helps both with miscarriage and abortion through medication means that was approved over 20 years ago and now is the subject of a very complicated legal Kangaroo court kind of situation that's probably going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. I'm a historian. I've had to think about Mr. Comstock, the prince of 19th century pornography himself, who single handedly appointed himself the role of national obscenity czar. And, you know, thanks to the passage of this federal law in 1873 you know, kind of really shaped a lot of legal questions that Mm. have huge ramifications, not just for abortion, um, but also for LGBT rights and other rights. And so for folks who are kind of like, oh, my God, why do we have to learn about these stupid ass laws? Totally feel you. But I have a great recommendation from one of my absolute favorite journalists, Melissa Jira Grant. Uh, who's really great on all of these kinds of issues around reproduction and LGBT rights. So Melissa wrote this piece called Conservatives Are Turning to a 150-Year-Old Obscenity Law to Outlaw Abortion. That was published on The New Republic uh, on April 12th. So I highly recommend it if you want a kind of useful... Um, set of context about what this law is, who this Comstock guy is, why this is coming up right now, and what the implications are for abortion, most centrally for Mifuprostom, but also with a wider view to a lot of the other related kinds of issues that are entangled there. So I highly recommend Melissa's work in general if you want really high quality, well researched, critical, kind of feminist journalism and queer journalism on these issues. But since we unfortunately got a deal with another nasty old white guy from the 19th century, um, I'd say let Melissa take you on that, on that journey.
4: That sounds great.
3: I just opened the tab. I cannot wait to read that. Thank you. Uh, Brian, what have you got for us?
4: So
2: I have, um, it's it's admittedly a bit of a local recommendation, but I'm going to share it anyway, um, because it does have a a political edge. So I'm recommending Eric Adame's Daily Weather Report. Now, those of you in the New York City sort of metro area, might remember that until last fall uh Adame was a meteorologist for New York 1 which is our like local news right. network. He was really great at his job and also incidentally gay and Ooh. very easy on the eyes. <laughs> let's say I, I I I enjoyed watching him watching him tell me the weather. Yeah. So back in the fall he was the victim of a sex panic wherein someone for months had been capturing images of him on an adult cam site that what? he was using. And they sent these in packages, multiple packages, to his employer and to his mother. And, you know, we're on a campaign to basically get him, you know, get him in trouble. Now, would you
4: care about firing a meteorologist? So
2: here's my thing. So he himself has admitted that he felt this behavior was a bit risky and compulsive and has Mm. sought therapy for it. However, he also should not have been pushed out of his job for having an erotic life, right? Yeah. Which Which has no bearing on how he reported the weather or practiced meteorology. Now, as I understand it, the police are actually currently looking into whether revenge porn statutes apply to this. They, they, They may not, but we'll see. But regardless, the good news is that Adame has moved on and started an independent daily weather newsletter that you can subscribe to, I think it's like $5 a month. I've done that, it's really convenient, it's well done. He gives a little short report just like on TV. Mm. He gives a letter grade to the day's weather from mm. Buffalo to <laughs> to the city. And it just makes me really happy to see someone nerdy and cute and brave really insist mm. on doing what they love and not letting this sex panic you know, stop them. Um, even though they're not on a network currently, they're still doing the weather. Not an ad, but if you live in the general area and are interested in checking that out, uh, you can go to ericadameontv.com.
4: Good for him. Yeah. Screw those people.
2: Yeah, totally.
3: Well, that brings us to the end of our show for this month. But as a reminder, please do send us your feedback, your topic ideas your favorite gay children's characters and anything else to outwardpodcast at slate.com or get in touch with us via Facebook or Twitter at SlateOutward. And always a little reminder that if you join Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Working, and you'll also never hit a paywall on Slate's site. If you want to learn more about that, you can head over to slate.com slash Plus, June Thomas is our producer and ever the toad to our frog. Mm. Well, maybe it's the frog to our toad, I don't know, we'll, we'll see. Mm-hmm. If you like <laughs> Outward, <laughs> please do subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds with another Outward on May 17th. In the meantime, bye Christina, bye Brian. Bye. bye. Take your allergy Take care, pills. Everybody.